This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. The Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series is underway. Two women's division title fights taking place overseas are announced. Whitaker versus Adesanya expected to take place in Melbourne, Australia. Aaron Pico loses once again, and the bad guy, Chael Sonnen, retires from MMA. We'll be joined by the crochet boss, Maurice Green, and Francis Naganu, two heavyweights competing at UFC Fight Night in Minneapolis, Minnesota on ESPN. Very, very big card. Thanks to those listening to the podcast or on TSN Radio in Toronto and Ottawa. Thanks for supporting the show. Please leave your reviews, recommend to others, all that fun stuff. If you want to contact me on Twitter, it's at Aaron Bronstetter and my co-host Joe Valtellini at Bazooka Joe V. Unfortunately, Joe not with us today. He's got glory uh, going on this weekend in Paris, France, I believe it is. It's going to be a fun one. Always a, a good card. There's actually a lot of MMA going on uh, this weekend, a lot of combat sports going on. you got glory. you got this uh, card in Greenville, South Carolina. That should be a lot of fun. You've got um, this uh, bare-knuckle fighting. You've got uh, Bellator in London. The bare-knuckle press conference is going on right now, and I'm, I'm choosing to ignore it. But I feel like I have to tune in, though. Does anybody else feel that way? You're watching Polly and uh, Artem Lobov go back and forth. I don't know why. I feel, like, I feel compelled to watch this thing. I don't know why why that's the case. I can't put my finger on it, but uh, something about it is just intriguing. I don't know. They're doing a good job promoting it. I guess at the end of the day, that's what it is. Because if uh, if they weren't doing a good job promoting it, then um, nobody would watch. But uh, I think this is one that uh, people have been interesting, interested in watching since everything that went down last year with Polly Malinaji and Conor McGregor. And uh, since Conor McGregor's not available to fight in bare-knuckle uh, boxing... I guess they're going to have to settle for Artem Lobov, who got his release from the UFC earlier this year and now has uh, moved on to BKFC, won his fight against Jason Knight, and now goes on to face Pauli Malinaji, who I believe is favored in this uh, particular affair. Uh, Dana White Contender Series underway. The first episode was this past week, and uh, a lot of people found it controversial that Brendan Lochnin did not get a contract. Now, I was on the MMA Reporters with Ariel Hawani this week, and... Uh, he was getting all defensive on me. I don't understand why. This is not a controversial subject, in my opinion. This is not a shock. We've seen in every season what Dana White is looking for. He's, he's outlined it. So him not getting that contract doesn't bother me based on that criteria that has been established over the years for this particular competition. It's like if, if you had the voice... And someone came out there, and they were singing, and they were good at singing, but they were a really fantastic dancer. They're not going to get, you know, the, the contract at the end of the, the series. I don't watch The Voice, but I think you probably get some sort of rec- recording contract at the end. And if you go on So You Think You Can Dance, if that's what the name of the, call, the, the show is, something along those lines, and you're a really good singer, and you're an okay dancer, that doesn't get you there either. Now, Brendan Lochnin's a phenomenal fighter. He looked great in that fight. He dominated three rounds against a very, very game opponent. As I mentioned to Ariel, I thought that was the, the closest match matchup on the card. So like the two that were the closest in competition level. And that makes it harder for you to get a finish in those cases. If you're fighting a tougher opponent than other people on the card, you're going to have a tougher time finishing that opponent. You're going to have a tougher time pushing the pace and, and trying to put someone out. That's just the way it is. That's what the biggest flaw is in this entire format for the Dana White Contender Series. And I, I pointed this out as well on Ariel's show. 
They should do it by weight class. Have one week, it's the straw weights. One week, women's fly weights. One week, women's bantam weights. If you want to do women's featherweights, if you can find enough of them, sure. Then you got the men's bantam weights. You got the men's, I'd love it if there was men's fly weights, but let's be realistic here. Men's bantam weights, men's uh, featherweights, men's lightweights, men's welterweights, men's middleweights, men's light heavyweights, and men's heavyweights. That we've got a level playing field because I feel like if you're a, a men's bantamweight and you're on the same, you know, card against, up against, you know, you got two light heavyweight fights, a heavyweight fight, and then say like, a, I don't know, a women's flyweight fight, you're probably going to be able to get a finish faster than the women's flyweight fight, but the other weight classes are more conducive to finishes. You know, to finishes. Go and look. The UFC has put out a guide with statistics on which weight classes have the highest finishing rates. So if you look at that evidence, you have to know that the deck is going to be stacked against you if you're in a lighter weight class. You can try as hard as you want to get a finish, but you just don't hit as hard as the heavyweights. That's just the, that's just the nature of the beast. That's the reality of the situation. So I personally think that it would be a lot more fun to watch five different matchups where they're in the same weight class. And, you know, looking at what happened last week with Leon Shabazian having a complication with cutting weight, if you have... Five different, you know, if you have five different matchups, they're all in the same weight class. You can have a reserve there ready to go because you know what weight class it's going to be, and you'll know that they can get on the scale, make some weight, and then step in. Now, this is the first time that's happened in the three seasons of uh, the Dana White Contender Series, uh, at least in the U.S. edition. So it's not, you know, it's kind of an anomaly at this point in time, but it would still be, I think, a better competition if you had everybody from the same weight class competing on the same card. I just think it makes a lot more sense. Nobody loses the opportunity. They're just not on. They're just all on the same card. That's all. And then at the end of the day, you give contracts to whoever you think warrants them. Whether it's three fighters, whether it's one, whether it's five. Because Hannah Goldie had no shot of getting a contract without getting a finish, zero shot. And getting a finish at women's strawweight is exceedingly difficult. Whereas you start the night off with the heavyweights, it gets a finish right away. You see the rest of the fights, there's only three other ones as opposed to four, which is what the usual amount is. None of those get finishes. So you know basically that Jorgen DeCastro is going to get a contract based on the criteria set forth by Dana White. I don't have a problem with how Dana picks who he gives the contract to. It's fine with me. I I think it it makes... I think it's okay that he gave Soriano the contract over Lockney. I I would have done the same thing based on that criteria. But if you said who... Like, of all these fighters, who do you think is the best? Who do you think is the, is the most competitive fighter of this bunch? You probably are going to take Lochnane, but that's not what this show is. That's not what this show has been, and that's not what this show will be. It's the Dana, if it was like the Sean Shelby contender series, and Sean was like, I think this guy's got the best chance of being a champion one day. That's, that's a different, completely different contest than what we're seeing here. On a week-to-week basis, Dana White is going to watch these fights, and he's going to decide who he thinks had the most exciting fight. That's the criteria. If you're the most exciting fighter, even if it goes to a decision, decision is, you know, you have a worse chance of getting a contract if it goes to a decision. But if it's two guys that are just throwing hammers at each other for three rounds, you know, a la Leonard Garcia versus the Korean Zombie, listen, there's not a whole lot of merit in that necessarily in terms of who's going to be a future champion or future ranked fighter. But if the premise of the show is to come up with the most competitive framework 
then you can look at Brandon Lockney and say, okay, this guy's got to be in. I mean, he he beat the the guy who was gave him the best fight. He dominated that fight. It was a really close fight, and he came out with flying colors. Then it makes sense. But that's not what we're looking at here. You've got to remember that the way that people historically have gotten these contracts is almost entirely based on what they did that night, how exciting it was, and whether or not they got a finish. That's that's it. So you can't criticize Dana White for not giving Lochnane a contract. If anything, you talk to Lochnane's management or you talk to, you know, you, you, you talk to Lochnane and say, why didn't you push the pace a little bit more? Why didn't you go for finish? We know what this show is all about. Now, Dana White, people say that Dana White insulted Lochnane by saying, you know, he's... He was showing timidity or whatever, or not not being aggressive enough by shooting that takedown at the end of the the round. And I get that, and uh, I think that that might be a little bit unfair. But he did say, I think that this guy's going to be in the UFC one day. And he also said, I think Hannah Goldie's going to be in the UFC one day. He's not trying to take down, like you can interpret it as him trying to diminish someone's stock. But all he's saying is that person was not aggressive enough on this night, and I think I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Now Ariel was trying to get me on his team for this particular uh, this particular show and saying, "Oh well, would you have given him a contract?" Yeah, I'll give all of them a contract. But if you said to me, and I, I tried to clarify this, and I tried to get him, I tried to make this fun for for him and say, you know, if if you're going to give me two contracts to give to anybody on the show, I would have given it to the same people that Dana White did, based on that criteria and what we've seen from this particular show. I'm probably repeating myself a lot here. If you've heard the MMA Reporter show with. Uh, with uh, myself on it this week, then you've probably heard me go through this already. People, for whatever reason, thought I was talking in circles, but I think I've made my point pretty clear. You need to adhere to the criteria that Dana White has put forth if you want to get a contract. Simple as that. Is it fair? No. Is it based on who the best fighter is that you know that night? Not necessarily. It can be, but not necessarily. It's based on who the most exciting fighter was on that particular show. Who got the best finish? Who pushed the pace? Who who went for it? That's what he's looking for. So if you're going to beat the brakes off of somebody, you better make it exciting. If you're going to win a fight, make it lopsided. Show aggression. That's what he's looking for. So there it is. Two women's title fights uh, have been announced. Uh, last week on the show, we touched on it a little bit. Uh, Zhang Veili versus Jessica Andrade. And we saw Dana White at the uh, brand new... Performance Institute in China, and he squared the two girls off, uh, and they're going toe to toe. And you know, Zhang Veili looks a lot bigger than Andrade, but a lot of the girls look bigger than Andrade. Andrade is really short; she's probably like five foot one, but uh, she packs a punch, and so does Zhang. So um, that's going to be a really interesting one. And uh, you know, at first I was a little little bit cold on it, but that was you know not really knowing all the facts about Suarez, how long of a timetable for recovery she would have. And um, Suarez said she was fine with, you know, Jean getting the next fight. She's young. She's willing to wait um, a little bit longer and, and, and heal up and get better. You know, you can make a case for Watterson, but I don't think her case is that much stronger than Zhang's. You're doing all this growth in China, building this performance institute. The next highest-ranked fighter, I think, is Ansarov and Ioana, both of whom are coming off losses, so I, I get why you would not look at those two. And then you go down to Watterson and Zhang, and I think with their growth in China right now, with what they're trying to do, from a promotional standpoint, and even from a meritocracy standpoint, if you look at all those different factors, Zhang does make a lot of sense. And I think Zhang can be competitive in this fight. I mean, we haven't really seen Zhang in a whole lot of trouble. 
that said, she's not fighting the likes of a Jessica Andrade. Her toughest opponent's been Tija Torres, who doesn't really have this, the same kind of finishing power as an Andrade has. And uh, Zhang passed that test. So um, I think that that's a very, very competitive fight. Now, when you've shipped over to flyweight and you go to uh, the main event in Uruguay, you have Valentina Shevchenko against uh, Liz Carmouche. And uh, that's an interesting one as well because Carmouche has a win over Shevchenko. And that's why that particular matchup is intriguing. Now, uh, Chukagian, I thought, got unfairly passed over here. But then, uh, you know, Ariel Hawani said he'd spoken to Chukagian and Chukagian's getting married and was not able to uh, fight that soon. She's, you know, gearing up for her wedding. So if she's willing to bypass that opportunity because of, you know, things she has going on in her life, which is entirely fair, then uh, Carmouche makes a lot of sense for two reasons. One being that she's beaten Shevchenko in the past. And the other reason being that her style is probably the one that will give Shevchenko potentially the most trouble, which is, uh, you know, going for takedowns, being in your face, pushing the pressure. I don't think Carmouche is as good a fighter as Shevchenko, and I think that Shevchenko will be a heavy heavy favorite. But I think when you look at it stylistically, that Carmouche is not a great matchup for a Shevchenko. Uh, I think Chukagin would be a much easier matchup for Shevchenko despite being higher ranked. Um, I think that uh, when you look at what Carmouche can do and can do well, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people want to see tested in Shevchenko. Now, do I think that Carmouche is going to be able to take down Shevchenko and lay on her for five rounds? Absolutely not. I, I just don't think that... A, Carmusha's style is that conducive to that sort of dominance. I mean, she's not like a Tatiana Suarez where she's going to just completely stifle you with her, her ground attack. Uh, and I also just think that Shevchenko is a lot more dangerous on the ground. She throws up submissions. We saw what she caught uh, Pena with back in the day. Speaking of which, Juliana Pena coming back. Uh, was it Pena that she caught her with? I'm t- I always get this confused. What was it? Who did she catch with that triangle? I'm going to go back and look this up because I feel it was Pena, but I might be wrong. Yeah, it was Juliana Pena with the uh, the arm bar. So we've seen what she can do off her back and, what you know, the kind of troubles she can put opponents into. And, yes, Pena is coming back, stepping in for Sarah McMahon to face uh, Nico Montano. That's going to be a fun one. It's nice to see Juliana Pena back. She had a, a child, I think, last year or possibly two years ago and uh, has taken some time away, and now she's coming back, so good for her. I, I enjoy watching her fight. She, her, her style is very good. She's very well-rounded. And uh, Montano at uh, 135, I think, is going to be a problem. She's a very good fighter. So that's going to be a, a very interesting litmus test for both of those ladies. So when you uh, when you look at Shevchenko versus Karmusha, I just don't think it's quite as competitive as the uh, the other title fight. And I think that the, the betting lines will indicate that. I think that you'll probably see Andrade at around a 2-1 to favorite. And you'll probably see Shevchenko at around a six to one favorite. If I had to guess, it might even be higher. That's just how I would peg peg those two particular matchups. Uh, Robert Whitaker, Israel Adesanya, looks like it's going to be heading to the house that Rondon Holm built, the uh, biggest attendance that the UFC's ever had back when it was known as Etihad Stadium in Melbourne, now known as Marvel Stadium. Yes, that Marvel, the comic company, Marvel Stadium in Melbourne can hold up to 60,000 people. And Whitaker versus Adesanya has a chance of uh, breaking the global, I believe, the global attendance record for MMA, which uh, KSW holds right now. And in Australia, I think that's a really big fight, even though it's the same uh, weekend as the uh, NRL finals, which is a a big deal there. I still think that Whitaker versus Adesanya is going to be, I mean, that's going to be in the morning, right? So 
that might be a, a good... I don't know when the NRL finale is, if it's the Saturday night or the Sunday night in Australia. I, I have to look that up, but I think that uh, that's going to be a big weekend in Australia for, for sports. And this uh, particular matchup, I'm so glad they were able to figure out a way to ha- have this happen in Australia. There were rumors that it was possibly going to shift to Vegas, but it uh, looks like, by all indications, that's going to be in Melbourne, and uh, it's going to be a big one because uh, these two individuals... Are, are so huge in the uh, Oceanic continent, and it's really an exciting fight. Now, Adesanya recently came out and said he would bet that Whitaker's not going to make it to the fight. He's going to get injured, and uh, the, it would be a real shame if that happened. I don't think Adesanya should should uh, say stuff like that. I think he should hope that Whitaker's there because I think Whitaker is one of the better matchups for Adesanya in the division. I think you're going to get more of a stand-up fight. You know, Whitaker's going to bite down on his mouthpiece and he's going to come at you, and uh, I think that that's uh, the kind of thing that Adesanya can capitalize upon. So uh, a very big fight there taking place in Melbourne in October from all indications. Hasn't been officially announced, but it looks like it's trending in that direction. Now this past weekend, Aaron Pico fell to 4-3 and three in Bellator and in his professional MMA career, losing to Adam Borix. Now, a lot of people are quitting on Aaron Pico now, and I don't blame them. I mean, he's had seven fights. We've, we've seen him compete enough, but Let's take a step back here and let's look at the facts. In terms of activity, Aaron Pico's up there with a Cowboy Cerrone in terms of how active he's been since he started his career in Bellator. He's, he's been fighting three, four times a year. So, yeah, a 4-3 record looks bad, but keep, keep in mind, this guy's 22 years old. And the crazy thing about him that I think a lot of people are, are ignoring is when you looked at his fights that he's lost, at first it was from getting into reckless striking exchanges. I mean, his his... Debut fight, I think he lost because he got caught and he got subbed. And it happened quickly, and, you know, that's a wake-up call. But he started to rely a little bit too much on the striking. He didn't mix in any wrestling, and everybody was so critical of that. They said, you know, this guy's not mixing in any wrestling. He's just, all he's doing is striking, and he's, his career's not going to last long if that's the case. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that he was, he was, he's a phenomenal striker. Some of his body shots, he might throw the best body shots of any featherweight in the world right now. I mean, save for maybe a Max Holloway, but I think his body shots are probably a lot stronger than a Max Holloway. Now, the issue was that he wasn't mixing in his wrestling, so he moves over to Jackson's, and he is just crushing Borix with the wrestling. He's taking him down, taking him down over and over again. Now, the problem with that, when you're taking people down over and over again, is that the threat of striking isn't there. And this is the, what the problem was when he was striking too much, is that the threat of wrestling wasn't there. People weren't afraid to, to go toe-to-toe with him and throw strikes because he wasn't going for takedowns. Now, on the flip side of that, he's not throwing strikes enough because he doesn't want to get caught with anything and just reverts to his wrestling to show that, hey, I can wrestle better than anybody, and I think he can. I think that in that division in Bellator, he can out-wrestle anybody. You know, save for maybe a Juan Archuleta if he moves up, but even still, they were training partners. I don't think they're going to fight or anything, but I think that when you look at what he can do in wrestling, he was, he was dominating Borix, but... Borix knew that that takedown was coming. Jackson knew. Greg Jackson knew that that takedown was coming. He was in the corner saying, watch out for the knee, watch out for the knee. And the reason why he has to say watch out for the knee is because when you can start telegraphing those takedowns, when all you're doing is going for takedowns, throwing the knee is is the way to combat that. Borix threw it, hit him with a massive flying knee, similar to one that uh, Yoel Romero threw against Chris Weidman. I saw a lot of people making that comparison online. And Pico was was done. He was out, and it was a good stoppage. And that is 
the big problem that Aaron Pico has had so far, and, and one at age 22 that I think he can remedy. Now, his biggest issues are two things. His chin, which can't be remedied. His chin's going to be his chin. Unless he, whatever, moves up a weight class or something, and I, I think that, that he'll just, just get hit harder if he moves up a weight class. And then number two is his fight IQ. Now, that's something that can be corrected. We have to remember that Pico's been a world-class wrestler and a, a really high-level boxer for over a decade. This guy has all the skills. There's a reason why he was such a highly touted prospect. It's not because people thought he was going to be four and three. They thought he was going to be, you know, you heard people say the LeBron James of MMA. Super prospect. His management keeps taking tough fights from him because they want him to show that he can beat the, the, the best of the best guys. But the big issue with him is that he has not found a good way to mix in his wrestling with his striking in a way that's a threat to his opponent at least a big enough threat that they're not able to do things that will find them success against Pico. Now, uh, interestingly enough, Ariel Hawani put something out, out on uh, Twitter uh, today, which was his top five UFC, or sorry, MMA prospects under 25, or 25 and under, 25 years old and under. Now, I, I, unbeknownst to me, part of his criteria was draw. But let's go through his, his list. It was Dylan Dennis. Who's two and zero? Michelle Pereira just joined the UFC twenty two and nine and two no contests. Sean O'Malley ten and zero. Angela Lee of uh, one championship nine and one, and uh, Arnold Allen fourteen and one of the U- of the UFC. Those were his top five. Now I gave my top five, who are Aspen Ladd undefeated eight and zero, Macy Barber undefeated seven and zero, Aaron Pico's on the list four and three, um, Mikhail Oleksiychuk fourteen and two and one no contest, and AJ McKee fourteen and zero. Those are my top five under 25. Now, people got on me about Pico. Why are you, you know, why is Pico there? And the reason why I have Pico there is even if you want to include Helwani's draw criteria, because I think that Aaron Pico has been must-see TV every time he's fought because all of his fights have been very exciting. And whether he's won or lost, there's been interesting outcomes to all those fights. But I think based on his skills and what we've seen him do in the, in the cage... You still have to look at this guy and think that this, he's got a whole lot of upside still. The biggest issue is going to be the chin. I mean, the chin is not something that can be cured. You can't get a better chin as time goes on. And at, at such a young age, to take that kind of damage, that can hinder your career for sure. Is it a hurdle that can be overcome? Probably not. However, you can become a more defensive fighter. You can become a more tactical fighter. You can do things that will make it harder for someone to catch that chin. And we've seen fighters do that in their careers. Fighters that everybody said, oh, this guy's got a glass jaw. He's, he's never going to be a champion. We've seen people overcome that hurdle by implementing smarter tactics, by implementing a better game plan. Even GSP's chin's been questioned before. But uh, GSP, using sheer fight IQ and, and sheer ability, was able to get to the top. And I think that Aaron Pico has the ability. I, I don't think the ability can be questioned. I think some of his body shots are some of the best. Like I mentioned earlier, his striking, his, his boxing's sharp. It's phenomenal. He's, he's accurate. He's, he hits hard. His wrestling is, I mean, look at that last fight against Borks. He was absolutely implementing his will, uh, imposing his will, implementing his game plan. So with you, when you keep those things in mind, if he's able to, and I think that, Putting him in these fights over and over again is, is a hindrance to that. I think that you need time to work on that in the gym. You need time to work on tactics and, and that side of things. And I think that that's 
he needs to take a little bit of time, I think, to work on that end of things, to work on the, the tactical side of MMA. I bet you he's destroying people in the gym, and that's why they're, you know, putting him in the, you know, saying he's ready to fight again. Because if, if he's just sparring with people and it's not hard sparring, and you get to see what how fast this guy's hands are and how good his grappling is, they're probably like, oh, yeah, this guy can beat anybody. You throw this guy in a fight, he's not going to lose. But then you have to work on that fight IQ and being able to mix both those things up in a, in a way that's conducive to winning. And I think that that's been the problem for Aaron Pico. And I, I do still have hope that Aaron Pico can become a very, very good fighter, an elite fighter even, if he's able to, to work on that end of things, work on the tactics. Uh, Chael Sonnen retired from MMA this uh, past weekend. Lost to Lyoto Machida. And I thought it was interesting hearing him talk after the fight, just saying that I just didn't have the, I didn't have the desire. I didn't have the will. The, uh, I wasn't able, like he was, you know, he's, I was on the ground and I just didn't have what it took to, he's like, if, if I, he's like, I knew I, I was able to do it. I knew I would be able to, to use my wrestling and, and turn things, you know, turn things around, but he just he couldn't do it. And that's when he knew that this wasn't for him anymore. And I think that that was a good realization. But uh, Chael Sonnen's always been one of my favorites to watch, especially outside of the cage. He's one of the, the most entertaining people to ever do this. And we're seeing a lot of pieces come out about him being a drug cheat. You know, he's been, he's copped to that, sure. But then again, he was, he was operating in the gray. I mean, keep in mind, when he was in that era of MMA, he's just one of the few people that have actually admitted to what he was doing. I'm not going to point any fingers, but I think it's pretty safe to say that there were a lot of people using a lot of different things back then when the testing just was not as stringent. And then there was the other piece that came out by uh, Elias uh, Cepeda, a colleague of mine who works at Yahoo, um, talking about how we shouldn't gloss over the racism of, uh, of Chael Sonnen. Now, this is one part that I think uh, I'm not sure if I agree with. He certainly said a lot of things that were certainly uh, controversial. But, listen, I, I don't want to undermine anything that he said. I, I don't want to say that he was right with, by a lot of the different things that he said. What I will say is that he, it was an act. If you know Chael Sonnen and you know anybody who knows Chael Sonnen, this guy was one of the most charitable guys in MMA. He apparently would find different people that needed help, would send them a private message, and, and would help them, would send them money if they needed money, if they needed to enter wrestling tournaments. He was somebody who really cared about this sport, about MMA, and about wrestling, grassroots wrestling, and about grappling. And a lot of that stuff, I don't think he wanted to be reported because he wanted to maintain the image that he was a bad guy, that he was the bad guy, that he was, you know, somebody who was good at trash talking, would back, wasn't talking trash, was talking truth, that, that whole element. Chael Sonnen is very different from Conor McGregor. You know, I think Conor McGregor definitely took a page out of Chael's playbook when it came to um, taunting his opponents and and all that. But I think that in terms of them as people, they're very different people. I don't think that Chael had any ego about him. And I'm not saying that having ego is a bad thing. I think having ego can help you with your confidence in terms of uh, in competition. And I think that Conor has used having that ego to his benefit. And I do think that there is some good in Conor McGregor that he has shown in different instances outside of the octagon. And some things that he's done that have shown that he's something of a loose cannon. But uh, I think that when you looked at, when the, the, the lights were off, when the cameras weren't on, 
some of the things that Chael Sonnen did to help other people, there wasn't really a light shined on that, and I don't think he wanted a light shined on that because I don't think he was looking for that kind of publicity. But if you talk to anybody that knew Chael Sonnen outside of his in-cage or his you know in-character persona, you've only heard good stories about him for the most part. Sure, he did cheat. He did. He did use you know performance enhancing drugs, and uh, you know that's one of those things. Though it's like in baseball. Like I personally think Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are Hall of Famers, and that a lot of the people that are getting inducted into the Hall of Fame above them are not Hall of Famers. At least if you're going to vote based on that merit, because when you look at that era, it should uh, you should be working under the assumption that everybody was using performance enhancing drugs, whether it's true or not. They had the ability to use it. Let's just put it that way. Not that everybody was using, but that they had the ability to do it. And then when you look at MMA, I think everybody also had the ability to beat that system. I mean, Chael was beating that system. A lot of other fighters were beating that system. They, they knew how to play that game. So when you're putting anybody from that era in the Hall of Fame or you're, you're, you're putting them in that discussion, you have to keep that in mind in the back of your head. Now, I don't think Chael Sonnen was a Barry Bonds or a Roger Clemens. But I do think that if you're going to use that argument to discredit what he did in the cage, you need to use that with a lot of other fighters. Anybody really who fought in Pride, based on what we know about Pride, I think it's safe to assume that they knew how to game that system, if there was even a system, and then even in the UFC in that era. They knew how to game that system. Now that USADA's regulating the sport, it's a lot trickier. I'm not, not to say that people can't find a way around it or find loopholes. I'm sure they can. But we do need to keep in mind that it's a lot harder nowadays. It, it is just a lot harder to beat that system. And um, I think that people who do cheat are way more prone to getting caught nowadays. I'd say by 99%. You have to be careful. Back then, you probably didn't even need to be that careful. So I don't think that Chael Sonnen should be discredited that much for that particular thing. Now, that being said, I mean, nobody's taking championships away from him. He didn't win a championship. And Brett Okamoto caught some flack for asking him about the promise he made to his father to win a championship. And I think that's a fair question but because Chael has been very forthright about that, about how he wanted to win that championship for his dad. And it's kind of a tragic story at the end of the day that he wasn't able to do that because I'm sure that that was at the top of the list of things he wanted to accomplish. But... If you showed Chael's dad how close he came to beating Anderson Silva, I don't think Chael's, Chael would think of his son as anything but a champion. He was two and a half minutes away from beating, at that time, one of the greatest ever. And still to this day, one of the greatest ever in Anderson Silva. He completely neutralized him. All he had to do was hang in there for two, two and a half more minutes. He could have just, you know, taken him down, tried to get into side control and avoid those kind of um, submission possibilities. Of course, I mean, it's easier said than done. But uh, I, I don't think that it's fair to undermine the accomplishments of, uh, of Chael Sonnen. And I also think that when you're looking at the things that he said while he was in character, that he was kind of the first to do the whole pro wrestling shtick in MMA successfully. And I think we need to remember that a lot of the things that he said were colored by that, were colored by taking on that persona. Now, I don't think a lot I think a lot of it was wrong. I think a lot of the things that he said, you know, especially about Brazil, is pretty uh is controversial and, and less than fair. But I, I also think that we need to um keep that in mind in the back of our head when we're assessing 
JLP Summit. Let's get to our first guest. He's a man that has fought for the UFC heavyweight title, one of the best heavyweights in the world today, and potentially still a future champion, taking on Junior Dos Santos UFC fight night in Minneapolis, Minnesota next weekend, and that is the Predator Francis Ngannou, and he joins us now on the TSN MMA Show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce this week's guest. I'm joined now by the Predator Francis Ngannou headlining against uh, Junior Dos Santos UFC on ESPN, the third event that they've done on ESPN Linear Television, and the second one that uh, Francis is in the main event of. So, Francis, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Aaron. Of course, it's always a pleasure. Um, first off, I wanted to find out about uh, your training camp this time around. Were you, were you splitting time again between Vegas and Paris? No, just in Vegas. Oh, just in I Vegas. Was, uh, I was in Vegas the whole time. So who uh, who has been your team uh, this time around in terms of getting you prepared for this fight? Uh, I, tr- I keep training with uh, Dewey and then uh, like uh, v- Vinny and I also train uh, at Extreme Kutsu and do some of my workout at the USCPI. Has, uh, has Fernand been traveling back and forth to train you for this as well? No, I don't. No, so Fernand hasn't been involved with this particular camp? No, he wasn't involved. Are you planning on training with him again in the future? I don't know. We will see. Okay. Uh, well, Junior Dos Santos said so this was a fight you were supposed to have uh, back in Edmonton last year. And um, really, I think the winner of this fight should be in position for the next title shot. Do you agree? I mean, there are nothing left. They are the only option. Uh right now otherwise what would be next for the winner of this fight right i agree with you um when you look at daniel cormier um i don't know if he's going to beat stipe miocic but do you think he's going to be around much longer do you think that if you do get a win here that he's going to be the person that you face for the title or do you think that this division is going to go in a a different direction uh i cannot answer that question i think it's up to daniel cormier because uh we are we are now talking about his retirement, and he's the only guy who really know exactly what's gonna happen. So we can uh, assume whatever we want to, but the real answer will come will come from will come from him. Well, it reminds me of when you and him were both fighting uh, in Boston against different opponents, and you guys were on tour together doing all kinds of media, and Daniel Cormier was like, you think I want to fight this guy? You think I'm big enough to fight this man? Do you think back on that and laugh now that you know that he's the heavyweight champion? No, even that time, I know it was a tricky, you know, it was a tricky talk. <laughs> it's good at tricky talk. <laughs> so you think, he's, you think he would be up for fighting you if it, if it came down to that? Oh, sure. Oof. <laughs> I, I I know him. He's very tricky. Uh, earlier this week, Dana White was saying he thinks uh, he'd like to see John Jones move up to heavyweight. Uh, John Jones has beaten pretty much everybody at light heavyweight. Is he somebody that uh, that you would like to face in the future? Uh, you know, in this division, there are a lot, there are a lot of people to face, and uh, and. Uh, I don't see like myself going to like expecting someone in the light heavyweight. Then if he comes up to a heavyweight, uh, at some point uh, we might gonna cross path, definitely. But uh, this is not something on the line for me. We're a Canadian outlet, and uh, in, in TKO in Canada, the heavyweight champion was Cyril Gunn, who just signed with the uh, 
the UFC. Uh, what can you tell me about Cyril? Have you trained with him in the past? Yes, I trained. I trained with him a few times in Paris uh, this past this past mo- few months. And uh, I mean, uh, he's he's young as the MMA fighter, but he's pretty good, very fast hand, you know. And uh, he has he has a shot. He he has his own his place in the heavyweight division and more than a fighter like a top contender. What if you thought of Junior's last three fights? Um, he had the win against Ivanov, and now he's had back-to-back TKO uh, wins, which he, he hasn't had in some time. It, it was a while before he had his last uh, TKO prior to these two, and now it looks like he's had something of a resurgence. Uh, say it again, please. What, do you, what have you thought, uh, your thoughts been about Junior and his last, his last two fights getting knockouts? It had been a while since he was uh, scoring knockouts, and now it looks like he's getting his groove back a little bit. Well, uh, you know, some, for someone who know who knows Junior, he will not be impressed. He will not be surprised because he's good at it, and uh, at every time he can he can uh, uh, TKO people. You know, basically how he fights and uh, who he is. So there's no surprise. Do you think um, people had had written you off after the Derek Lewis fight? That people didn't think that you were going to come back to being the same Francis that they had been used to seeing, getting those first round knockouts, which you've now done in two straight fights. What people think is not really matter to me. What uh, I know is going to happen. I know I'm going to be there, even though I was struggling. I, I knew he's going to. I'm going to find my way up, and uh, it seems like. Um, I'm kind of like getting close. Uh, going back to uh, Fernand, is your relationship with him still good? Are you guys still talking regularly? Uh, Sometimes we still talk, but no regularly, as you said. What, what's the reason for that? What the reason for that? Well, I, I don't have too much comment to give you about that. It's just how it is. Okay, I understand. Um, how do you think you're going to beat Junior Dos Santos uh, in Minnesota? What What do you think is going to be the method, and, and uh, when When in the fight do you think it's going to happen? Uh, I'll tell you what. How fat fight going to happen is not how I concern about because uh, I'm prepared for however it's happened to uh, to handle it and uh, the what. What really matters to me is to get out there with my hand raised, you know. So um, I'm not thinking before I would have said, yes, I'm going to go there. I'm going to knock, knock him out. Then uh, that probably going to get me out of my uh, game plan of, or something because I'm looking for the knockout. And I done that once and it didn't work. So... I will not do that kind of mistake again. I just go in there to fight, ready for everything who, who can show up. Is that been the change in your mentality a little bit, is to go with the flow a little bit more and not not have expectations and to just uh, react when you need to react? 
Yes, I think it's how fighters should think. Like, uh, yes, you're you're fighter and you don't know what can happen in the fight. So you should be just get yourself ready to whatever happen in the fight to handle it. Did anything have to change when this fight was moved to Minnesota for you? It was supposed to be at UFC 239, and uh, this card needed a main event. Um, were there any changes that needed to be made in order to make this happen? Uh, no, we just adjust uh, a training just in case if ever this fight has to go more than three rounds. Right, so you had to make that adjust. I forgot about that. So this, this fight's going to be five rounds. So you had to make that kind of adjustment. Uh, in the yes. middle of your camp. Yes, that was the only thing that uh, had to change. But uh, at the time, we were we uh, we have we had time left. What do you think it says uh, that the UFC has the faith in you to be in the main event of two ESPN cards? Uh, these are some of the biggest cards of the year. Well, I was. Uh, I don't know because originally we uh, didn't supposed to be the main. I wasn't in the, the main uh, main event on this card, so we just step in because uh, Ty Tyron Woodley was supposed to fight uh, Lobby Lola, got injury. Yes, so I think it was just random. All right, Francis. Well, it's always a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, best of luck against Junior Dos Santos, and uh, hopefully a title shot will follow if you get a win. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. That was Francis Ngannou. Looking forward to that fight against Junior Dos Santos. Wow, that's going to be a banger. Fun, fun, fun. When Francis the Predator Ngannou is involved. But uh, we've got another card this weekend. It's a UFC fight night in Greenville. Unfortunately, not headlined by uh, the prodigal son of Greenville, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. But uh, I love the main event. Hanato Moicano versus uh, the Korean Zombie. This is going to be a fun one. I think this is going to just be five rounds of great action. And um, you'll see Moicano throwing those leg kicks. You'll see the Korean Zombie continue to walk through them until he can't take it any longer or until he gets a win. Because that's how he rolls. Um, and uh, usually he can take a lot of punishment. This is a, a really good uh, opportunity for the Korean Zombie to get back into the mix after he lost at the very last second in a fight that he was winning against Jair Rodriguez with that big up elbow, one of the greatest highlights in UFC history. And uh, this time he was on the receiving end of it uh, as opposed to his twister that he pulled on Leonard Garcia back in the day. Uh, one of the better highlights in uh, UFC history in terms of ones that were in the favor of the Korean Zombie. Uh, and that's a really solid main event. And uh, Rob Font versus John Lineker, another great one. Rob was on the show last week if you want to check out that interview with him if you missed it. It's not dated. Still good. Shelf life still is, is fine. It hasn't expired as of yet. So that's going to be a great one. Uh, John Lineker, always a, a very, very fun action fighter. And same with Rob Font. So that's going to be a great main and co-main event. Um, you know, uh, Joe and I made our picks. I, I picked a uh, parlay of uh, Darren Wynn, or Deron Wynn, rather, and... Um, the big fella, Yair Rosenstruck. Uh, now, Deron Wynn has a, a different opponent. So I'm going to check in with Joe and make sure that that's okay. If I if I take the new uh, line for Deron Wynn and, and pair that up with uh, Rosenstruck. And uh, Rob Font was uh, Joe's pick. So that's going to be uh, interesting to see what happens there. Um, Brian Barbarina against Randy Brown is a fun one, too. Barbarina's looked great lately. Um, I know that he, lo he uh, lost at the, you know, pretty much the last second against Vicente Luque in a very, very closely contested fight. 
a very uh, one of the fights of the year, really. And now he's back in action against uh, Randy Brown. We saw Vicente Luque back in action recently at the UFC fight night in Rochester. And uh, we also have Andrea Lee versus Montana Del Rosa. That's a, a great one. That one I'm really looking forward to. Um, Andrea Lee has looked uh, phenomenal so far in the UFC. Um, she's uh, won uh, both of her fights against uh, Veronica Macedo and Ashley Evans-Smith. Um, and uh, Montana De La Rosa also looking really good of late. Uh, she hasn't lost since she's entered the UFC as well. Wins over Christina Marks, uh, Rachel Ozdovich, and uh, Nadia Kassem. But this is definitely her toughest uh, opponent. A big step up in comp- uh, competition for uh, Montana De La Rosa. Uh, Kevin Holland against Alessio Dishirico. Uh, this was the other one I was considering for a pick was Dishirico. Um, he, he's looked really tough in all of his fights. And uh, Kevin Holland, to me, has so much talent. But for whatever reason, he's not able to leverage that talent into, uh, into good wins. For, you know, I, I can't understand why. It's, you know, he, he uh, had that loss um, to Thiago Santos to start off his career. Very, very uh, tough uphill battle for him. There, but uh, then John Phillips and uh, Mearshart, two two uh, tough opponents. He uh, beats both of those. Mearshart split decision that uh, I think a lot of people thought should have gone the other way, but really a fight where not a whole lot happened. Um, so we'll see uh, how Kevin Holland looks against uh, DiCherico. This is going to be a an important one for him to to show that he uh, he can um, look good in a fight and can can win in the fashion that he's expected to. He's a two to one favorite here. Uh, Ashley Yoder versus uh, Siri Kondo. I recommend the piece about Ashley Yoder that uh, my colleague at ESPN, Mark Raimondi, wrote. Uh, definitely worth checking out about uh, what she's gone through with the death of her brother leading up to this fight. Uh, another fight that I think is has the uh, potential for fireworks, Dan Ige against Kevin Aguilar, headlining the preliminary card. Uh, Ige has looked uh, fantastic recently. Three straight wins, Mike Santiago, Jordan Griffin, and Danny Henry. Uh, and Kevin Aguilar, former LFA champion, somebody who a lot of people thought should have been in the uh, UFC a little bit sooner, has looked great uh, since his win on the Contender Series last year, now in the UFC. And uh, this is going to be a banger. This is a fun one. Uh, I kind of lean Ige here as the underdog. Uh, Matt Wyman making a, a, a long, long-awaited return. When was the last time he fought? Uh, he His last fight was against Isaac Valley Flag, November twenty second, 2014. Luis Pena had uh, was two years away from making his UFC debut. Uh, sorry, his professional debut, rather, uh, when Matt Wyman last fought. Matt Wyman has stuck around in the testing pool for this very reason, wanted to make a comeback at some point, and uh, he does against Luis Pena in the lightweight division. They wouldn't let uh, Pena stay at featherweight after he missed weight in his last, uh, last fight in uh, what he was hoping would be his featherweight debut. Uh, Alan Crowder against Yair Rosenstruck. Uh, Rosenstruck, uh, a pretty big favorite, and I think it's uh, for a good reason. Rosenstruck, I think, is one of the better strikers in the heavyweight division, and he's going to try to show that against Alan Crowder. Uh, Rosenstruck, a former kickboxer, uh, has big, big hands, heavy hands, uh, a very tough out, and uh, that's going to be a fun one. Uh, Ariana Lip- uh, Lipsky uh, looking to make uh, to bounce back off of her debut, and she's going to face uh, Molly McCann. Lipsky lost her debut. Um, was expected to win that fight and uh, was unable to do so. Um, Darren Wynn, uh, sorry, Deron Wynn, who I uh, mentioned earlier, taking on a short notice, Eric Spicely back in the UFC. TriStar Zone. He's won a back-to-back fight in CES against uh, Leo Pia, is it? Leo Pla? I don't know. I don't know him. Uh, and uh, Kyle Magalyesh, former UFC veteran in his own right, uh, beat him in the first round by TKO. Uh, back in March, and now he's back in the UFC looking to get a win over win. 
I'm not sure. That was definitely not on purpose, but it sounded cool. Uh, as uh, Deron Wynn is expected to be uh, one of the top prospects in the UFC, trains with uh, Daniel Cormier, a uh, high-level wrestler. But we've seen what, what Spicely can do with his submission grappling. Uh, and this is uh, not, not an easy opponent for uh, Deron Wynn. So even though I picked Wynn and Rosenstruck, I'm not as confident with Wynn against Spicely as I was uh, against Santos, uh, his previous opponent. Uh, and uh, Andre Ewell against Anderson Dos Santos. Anderson Dos Santos is a fun fighter to watch. Uh, Ewell... Got a win over uh, uh, Hen Burrell, but lost in his most recent fight. So uh, that's the the Cardinals in um, South Carolina. Very, very uh, fun one, I think. I think especially at the top, when you look at the main and co-main, I think that's uh, those are fireworks waiting to happen. And uh, the weigh-ins tomorrow morning. Speaking of uh, Rosenstruck and his kickboxing background, we go to a fighter now who has a kickboxing background of his own, and that's the crochet boss, Maurice Green, a good friend of Joe Valtellini's, who uh, Joe, unfortunately, not here to talk to Maurice, but uh, I uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Maurice Today, and uh, here he is on the TSN MMA show. I'm now joined by the boss, the crochet boss, Maurice Green, who's uh, fighting at UFC Fight Night in Min- Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, next next week. It's fantastic. So you're training out in Minnesota for this, correct? Um, or you're I back mean, and forth? My main, my, my main gym is in St. Cloud, Minnesota, yeah, but for... For this camp, my coach and my manager got together, and they, they thought it would be a great idea to send me out to uh, Factory X because they thought what Mark Montoya was doing, the way he coaches, the way he teaches striking would really uh, work well with you know how I strike and my style. And um, So I went out there for about, when it was all said and done, about seven weeks, I went out there and um, we put a full camp in for the first time ever. So it seems like a lot of your experiences since being on the ultimate fighter have been taking you out of your comfort zone, both, you know, being in a house, a house away from your family, um, training more yeah. often than you're used to. And now moving over to Denver for a little bit and going back and forth with, uh, with Minneapolis in order to, uh, to really grow your game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to, um, you know, sometimes where the gym I'm at right now is a great place. You know, there's a lot of bodies in here. Sometimes I can't get the bodies that, I need so sometimes you you have to step outside of the box and go to a world class gym and just focus on that that little piece which is called MMA, you know. When when it comes to jujitsu, that's where I do my jujitsu and I do kickboxing and everything. But uh, MMA, the you know, Factory X is one of the best in the in the world for a reason, and um, you know, I they'll make me the best in the world, and, and I hope they're going to make me a world champion. And it's going to start with Junior Albini. Do you feel like at 32 you wish you would have trained like this when you were younger? Like, is that is that kind of a regret knowing that how good you could have been faster? Nope, not at all. Um, who knows if I? Everything's about timing in this game. So who who knows if I would have been that good or if I would have gotten hurt? Actually, I think one of the one of the best things that happened to me is um, I started late in the game. So my body hasn't been beaten up over the past seven eight years like a lot of these other heavyweights i haven't been beating my body up you know i just started beating my body up when it really matters now you know some of these guys were beating their body up way before it really mattered by the time it matters you know it, it, it's a it could be a harder road so i'm i actually feel great right now everything feels good um the camp went awesome <laughs> i'm not sore i don't have any bumps and bruises i mean i'm 100 percent healthy right now so that's a very interesting way of looking at it because, uh, like, like you mentioned, if you have a lot of wear and tear when you're younger, you know, a lot, the body is not conditioned to be that, you know, that much, I guess, 
not have that's the same durable for yeah that, that long. durable that's the word I'm looking for yeah it's not supposed to be durable for that long so if you if you don't put the miles on early you're going to get optimal performance in your later years yeah and, I, and it's not like I had a you know my brother played D1 football and a lot of these guys are coming from other sports where whether it's wrestling or this and don't get me wrong those bases are very strong for MMA um, but you know I was able to learn it and it all makes sense to me and I learned I'm you know I'm learning it still because I'm always a student of the game uh, I'm learning it at you know at at a good enough pace to to compete in the UFC and you know hopefully down the road call myself one of the best in the world in the UFC so um, you know only time is going to tell at this point in time. Now you originally were with Glory Kickboxing. Uh, my co-host Joe Valtellini was very excited to see that you were on tough. He's like, oh, the crochet boss is on tough. He was very excited to watch you uh, perform there. But do you feel like a lot of fighters underestimate how good you are in terms of your well-roundedness? I know I've noticed you have a lot of different uh, submission victories in your arsenal more more than uh, more than knockout victories in terms of MMA. Of course, yeah. Uh, well, a lot of people don't realize that when I first started, I started on the mat doing jiu-jitsu. Um, I had a similar role to like Dustin Jacoby. You know, I did the same tournament Dustin Jacoby did. He's one of my teammates at Factory X. I did the same tournament he did. I took second place in that tournament. I never kickboxed a day in my life. You know, like just kickboxing. I never had an amateur career. I got thrown to the wolves. And, um, you know, they offered me Anderson Silva. They offered me Kathleen Morisano. They offered me, you know, fights on short notice. I was that guy that stepped up and took those fights. Um, so I got that experience from Glory, which technically I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a kickboxer. You know, I fought Anderson Silva. He had over 50 fights. I probably had, what, maybe four or five kickboxing bouts? You know, so. Yeah, at that point in time. Yeah. So most would say I'm a striker because they saw that I fought in Glory, but, you know, um, you know, I, I started doing jiu-jitsu from day one, um, and I'm, I'm really confident in my ability um, to submit and to look for submissions, you know, and, and find a submission uh, in the scramble. You know what I mean? I'm not just going to let you get up to knock you out. If I can submit you, I'm going to put your ass to sleep quick. Now, I read uh, a piece that uh, Chad Dundas wrote about you in The Athletic, about your background in crocheting and how that came about. When when was the first time you that crocheting caught your eye? Um, actually, it wasn't crocheting. It was knitting right back in 2014. No, uh, no. I've been crocheting for about 10 years now. So 2004, I started a job. So six, seven, eight. So 2008, I probably started crocheting. Um, but I started knitting first. This girl taught me how to knit. Uh, I was running a clothes line. I was about 330 pounds. And I couldn't find clothes my size. So I started designing clothes with uh, a business partner. And through that, we wanted to do something different. So I started, uh, I learned how to knit scarves. Because uh, I used to take the train, the metro train in Chicago, for about, you know, a couple hours a day. So I would knit on the train. And then my fiancé, after I met her, uh, my fiancé, now it was like, baby, you should learn how to crochet. It's faster. So I hopped on YouTube, and in 30 minutes, I taught myself how to crochet, and I ended up making my first hat that night, and the rest is this history. And then we have uh, we adapted the crochet boss name because that kind of encompasses me, you know. I'm trying to give people stitches, and I'm trying to make sure my crochet stitches is on point. What if after a fight they came to you in the back and said, listen, the doctor has fallen ill and we need you to stitch your opponent uh, that you've just beaten? Would you would you be open to that? I mean, them stitches going to look messed up, but yeah, <laughs> if you want me to. <laughs> I mean, it's, gonna look, it's not going to look like stitches that you would normally get. It's going to look like, you know, like stitches if I was putting a, putting a tag on a hat or something. <laughs> I mean, 
there's got to be a, an interesting story about where you've been on the metro train or somewhere in public crocheting or knitting. You're a six foot seven man in your 30s. I mean, you don't, that's not really the archetypal person that you see knitting. Have, no. wh- give me some stories that have happened outside of, you know, when you're out in public and people see you knitting. Has anybody asked you any questions or any, uh, any okay. weird situations that have arisen? So I was just in, I was just in Colorado. And uh, one of the things I did in Colorado was, um, you know, on some of my mornings off, I would go to a Starbucks. And I would sit down, I'd put my headphones in, and I would crochet um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's very, very, very relaxing to crochet. Just, you know, I, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not going to hide the type that I crochet. I make some dope, I make some dope hats. And, you know, not a lot of people can make what I make. And the ones that can, can't make them as fresh as mine. Just saying. Um, but you know, there's people that stop you. One woman told me, she said, Oh my gosh, I've never seen a man crochet. You made these. I was like, yeah. She was, how long have you been crocheting? 10 years. You know, I tell her 10 years and you know, um, they all like it. You know, they're all, they're, they're kind of blown away and shocked that I, I, that me of all people are crocheting. Now, does your other occupation ever come up? Um, every once in a while it comes up. I actually, I had a gentleman, uh, Walk up on me. He said his wife, his wife crocheted, and um, he was showing me some things. And he asked me what I do. I told him, I, you know, I fight in the UFC, and he kind of his face kind of went back, like, "What? You fight in the UFC and you crochet?" I was like, "Yeah, you know, I've been crocheting for ten years. I've been fighting for eight, nine years. So, um, you know, I've been crocheting a lot longer than I've been fighting. <laughs> so this was here way before mixed martial arts." Now, I've got an idea for you for Junior Albini. I know you were thinking of knitting him a, a blanket or crocheting him a blanket. But um, I don't know if you've watched. Have you watched Junior's fights in the past? Like his previous fights? Um, yeah, I've, I've watched a couple of his fights. I actually just watched his fight against one of my friends, Tim Johnson. So um, I don't know if it was that fight, but one of, the, one of his fights, he wore like a diaper. To the, you know, he took his shorts and, and shaped them into like a diaper. So I was thinking maybe you could crochet him like a diaper-shaped. A diaper. Yeah. Like maybe oh. that would make some sense. You'd probably enjoy that. Somebody told me to crochet him a pillow. Yeah, like a pillow. Yeah, it was a pillow or blanket. I remember you re- reading about that. But he, he, he wore like a diaper uh, in one of his fights. Everybody was kind of teasing him about that. I think it was the one against Ar- Arlovsky. Yeah, he tucked his, he tucked his shorts under his, under his compression shorts. That's right. And people were saying it looked like he was wearing a diaper. Yeah, they called him diaper, diaper boy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, just, you know, I'm just spitballing here. Maybe we can come up with some ideas. Maybe I'll crochet him a diaper. <laughs> oh, that'd be funny. That'd, that'd, that'd piss him right off. <laughs> I don't care. I like I like fighting guys when they get mad. They make mistakes. Well, yeah, you can. Well, you can use your crocheting ability to get in someone's head, which is good. It's a, you're you're crossing over the two the two talents. One hundred percent. That's that's. That, why do you think the crochet boss was born in the MMA world? <laughs> So what kind of music? What kind of music are you listening to when you're when you're crocheting? That's kind of taking you out of. Uh, out of the fight land in your head and putting you into crochet land. Well, kind of, I mean, I listen to Roddy Rich, uh, Roddy Rich, Meek Mills. I mean, I'm listening to straight straight rap music while I'm crocheting. <laughs> I mean, it's not. But lately, I've been. You know, I, I've actually been uh, jamming to the uh, Travis, um, Randy Travis' greatest hits. Actually, okay, well, that's interesting. I thought you were going to say Travis Scott. Randy Travis no, is greatest no. hit. I listen to Travis Scott too, but also I listen to a little bit of everything, man. Well, what that, I was thinking is, mood. you know, when people are, you know, the normal de- demographic of people that crochet listen to like, you know, standards and uh, big band music. I was just curious if you if you went into that world as well. 
No, no, I don't <laughs> think so. No, the country, a little bit of rock, you know. And I like Dave Matthews. You know, growing up, Dave Matthews band was always huge in my high school. So, you know, Dave Matthews kind of dope too. Well, that's if you're crocheting hacky sacks and those hats, those uh, you know the <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so do you? Are you going to be? Do you sell your crochet like the different things that you crochet online? Is there some way that people that you know are fans of yours can go and buy it? Well, I'm I'm in the process of uh, building another brand. You know, as I when I was telling you before, I used to own a own a clothing company. Um, I mean, I'm going to brand the Crochet Boss um, with T-shirts, and I got a logo that I I've made digital, and um, we got that ready for print for screen printing. So in addition to my hats, you know, I'll have T-shirts and hat and and like dad hats and other things like that. That should be up here. I'm hoping by the end of the summer I can get it out. Uh, it's not available now. I'm just trying to build some inventory for these hats. So when I when I go live, I have at least maybe 50 pieces that I made that I can sell in addition to everything else. All right. Well, if I'm ever covering one of your events live, I'll hit you up. I'd like to buy one. I'm you've got a customer. <laughs> Hey, let me tell you something. It'd be the best, the best investment you make. You'll have that. I've had my hats for eight, nine years. My wife loves crocheted hats. Loves them. It's all she wears oh, in the winter. And they're nice. And they're nice. I, I do a little bit of work with Lion Brand Yarns. Uh, they reached out to me on uh, on Instagram because they liked what I was doing with uh, with crocheting. So I, I've been in contact with them, trying to figure out how I could be more of a part of more of an influence uh, in, in my space. You know, uh, but I'm in a unique space. So hopefully down the road you'll see you'll see me doing more with Line Brand Yarn too. You know, hopefully that'd be one of my bigger sponsors. I like it. Well, Maurice, it's great uh, great getting to know you. I look forward to seeing you uh, in action next uh, Saturday in Min- uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, your backyard. And uh, thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you so much for your time. You guys have a wonderful day. And if if anybody's listening, if you don't know, if you, if you haven't followed me, get on Instagram, get on Twitter. Uh, search the crochet boss and yours truly will come up follow the journey and I appreciate everybody who, who, who's following the crochet boss now there it is thank well, you for your time if, you have, if you're a crossover fan of both crocheting and MMA this is the best guy to follow I guarantee it tell your grandma she'll follow me I know she will <laughs> alright <laughs> well, thanks a lot Maurice appreciate your time you're welcome you have a great day thank you that was the crochet boss Maurice Green he's a lot of fun I like that guy I'm wishing him the best of success and maybe he'll uh, crochet that diaper for Albini. I like that idea. Because I came up with it, so it's brilliant. Like all of my ideas. I wish that was the case. If that was the case, I'd probably be uh, you know, the head of a, a major enterprise at this point in time, rather than talking to you folks. Although I, I don't think there's anywhere else I'd rather be than speaking with uh, those who enjoy the TSN MMA show. And we'll be back next week with more TSN MMA show uh, to preview the card in Minneapolis. Um, two of whom, two of the uh, fighters... I spoke to today uh, competing on uh, that particular card, and we'll have Joe uh, Benavides to discuss his fight and the uh, state of the flyweight division, which continues to shrink, unfortunately, and he'll give us two cents on that. That's next week on the TSN MMA Show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.